Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Sotha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. This week, we've seen widespread climate crisis demonstrations from environmental group Extinction Rebellion flooding our city streets, as well as the Sydney rail system collapsing once again to commuters' chagrin. But as always, we've got the news you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have Lindsay Jackson a digital rights expert from Electronic Frontiers Australia talking to us about the ways in which our favourite social media apps are changing and what that means for our online security. After that, we'll be hearing a story from one of Backchat's reporters, Eamon Snow, about the issue... The issue of problem... The issue... Are you okay? The, okay? I am. I am not okay. I I'm the hangover okay. one, Charmy. Uh, <laughs> on. um, it's the issue that... Uh, Gambling uh, has. It's about gambling, guys. Um, uh, yep. Okay. And as always, we want to hear from you. So tell us how safe do you think you are online? I am very curious about this. <laughs> I actually do this. Do you sticky note your laptop camera? I actually do put a little note over my laptop camera as if someone is watching me and watching me eat pasta at midnight <laughs> while watching Netflix. Um, I am curious, uh, do you do that or are you convinced that your iPhone is listening? Let us know. 0409-945-945 or tweet us on Backchat FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. It's the constant presence in your life that knows where you went to school, what you've been buying online, and whether... Uh, you're single, you're dating, and probably even where you're planning to go tonight. Oh my god, is it is it my mom? It's your mom. It's definitely <laughs> your mom. No, it's not your. Are mom. we doing a segment on my mom? <laughs> Hi, Auntie. No, it's not your mom at all. It's your social media network. Ah. It's everyone's mom. Uh, they've become so entwined with our lives that just this week, a senior British. MP called for a parliamentary investigation into how Facebook and other social networks manipulated emotional and psychological responses of users by getting information supplied to them. Yes, that's right. We have digital rights expert Lindsay Jackson here to talk to us about what is really going on here and how we can better protect our personal and private data. Hi there, Lindsay. Hey, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So Instagram has announced a number of changes. So first, it removed the ability for people to see um, the amount of likes that other people have on their feed. Um, and now they've scrapped the following tab. Why is this significant? Well, I guess, you know, the following is kind of the act, like seeing the activity that other people have been doing. So if you've been liking something or if you've been commenting on something, um, then I could see what it is that you're doing. And I guess the the creepiness factor of that um, was something that, you know, Instagram decided that they were going to remove. I think it got people into a bit of trouble if you saw some, me liking something that maybe I shouldn't have. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's part of the, the spy factor is part of what Instagram are trying to remove. So Instagram says that it's turned likes invisible to improve the mental well-being of its users. Um, but is there any evidence to show that it works or it could work? Well, I think that's really tough because they would have evidence. So they would have done, like, you know, they're multi, 
billion dollar companies. They would have done a whole bunch of research around this, um, but they don't make it public. And so any actual research that's going to happen in the public domain is going to have a, a, a lag time. So, I don't know, we probably won't know for maybe a couple of years until researchers actually get their hands on enough data to figure this out. Mm. So, I mean, how do you think these changes are going to affect the way that people interact on social media? I think it's tough because different people do different things on social media. So, the focus is like what happens to the influencers, um, what happens to wannabe influencers, um, and... You know, so for, for, for them, they're arguing that the wannabes that are buying likes, you know, they'll just sort of fritter away and the real influencers will be fine because marketers will still want them. Um, I think there's also these other just everyday people where it's, where it's much harder to know what the effects are going to be. Um, like if you're starting a business and you want to get your business information out there, what you know, is, does, does that make Instagram worth your time? Um, if you just, you know, if you want to just, yeah, if you're just a regular user, does it mean that you're going to start to see better content or not as good content? Um, those sort of those sort of everyday cases, I think, are going to be really tough to, to figure out the impact of. So Instagram is owned by Facebook, uh, and Facebook got into a lot of flack in 2014 for testing how they control the emotions of their users by deliberately manipulating the news feeds without any consent. So should we be sceptical of Instagram's intentions? I think we should always be heap sceptical. <laughs> I mean, these guys, like, they're massive businesses. They're revenue models. You know, they are there to, they are there to make money. And I think everyone realizes that now. Like, initially it was they're there to connect people and we can do all this great stuff. But keeping that afloat and if you can make money, you, you will make money. Like, that, that is definitely the thing that's happening um, and so, so yeah, we, we're putting all of this data and this information in, but you've got Facebook owning Instagram. So, you know, you've got data, facial recognition stuff. Like, they've got a lot of power there. Um, and, yeah, we should absolutely always be sceptical of them. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swathadas and Shami Sivasubramanian. We're speaking with Lindsay Jackson, a digital rights expert about your online security when it comes to how we use our social media apps. Now, Lindsay, Google has announced they will introduce an incognito mode on its Maps app, which means that it won't save your recent locations. But the company says it won't affect how your activity is used or saved by internet providers, other apps, voice search, and Google services which seems like it doesn't address any privacy concerns that have been flagged by people in the past. So what is this announcement really solving? Well, I guess there's definitely there's pressure. <laughs> like there's pressure on these on these organizations on like Facebook and Google to to, to start being better. Um, and finally, you've got governments that are catching up that are saying, oh, well, maybe we should force them to start being better. Mm. Um, and so that's happening in Australia with like the ACCC have just put out this big digital platforms report. Um, so, you know, like it definitely, it's definitely good for, for PR. Um, but when incognito modes aren't default and you're getting users to, to make active changes to settings, then you start to have a problem. Um, but when it comes to apps, uh, when it comes to maps, sorry, there's so much integration that already happens with other platforms and paid services. So it will be difficult to kind of untangle that because it's such a it's such a like a connected web of companies that are using and sharing that data already. 
So you spoke about the PR around these companies. Uh, most of these tech companies are going through a significant PR cleanup. So what should we be cautious about as users? So we should be we should be cautious about what they're saying and what they're doing, especially when they're merging. Um, and we should really start to be concerned about how long they're keeping our data for. Like, so now, like you think about how long you've been using a platform. Like I've been using Facebook for I don't know, like eight years. So they've got eight years worth of my information, um, and more and more, especially now that they're starting to connect with other apps and, and buy our other apps. Um, so, so you know, we should we should we should really start to be cautious about about that. That we are, we are creating like this really detailed record because at the end of the day, all you can do is protect yourself and the information that you've put in there. So, just how important is our data to social media services? Well, these are multi-billion-dollar companies. Like mm. that's. That's what they're geared towards. They're geared towards making huge returns for investors, like unicorn returns. Um, so, and and for a lot of them, they haven't quite like a, some, a lot of them aren't profitable yet. So they're like figuring out the business model. Um, they know they've got ads for sale and data for sale. So how do you make money and from who? Like where where is the where's the value of that coming from? Um, and so you know that's. That's, that's incredibly important. Um, it, that's important for, you know, insurance companies that want to de-risk by uh, either getting people that, you know, maybe eat bad food to pay more for health insurance um, or they, you know, or they, yeah, or they want to not insure people um, that are at risk. So, so yeah, like you've got companies that are trying to make money and save money and the, the more they know about us, the more they can make better decisions or use automation to make better decisions from their point of view. Thank you so much for chatting to us this morning, Lindsay. No worries. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great. So that was digital rights expert and advocate Lindsay Jackson. Um, But stay tuned because we'll be moving along to a piece from our very own reporter, Eamon Snow, who has looked into problem gambling issues sweeping Australia. That's coming right up. But don't go anywhere because we're going to go to a song. Here's my favorite song of the moment. I've been playing it all the time, so I'm making us play it on Backchat. Here's Be Honest by Georgia Smith. The, the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Backchat, your alternative to talk back. From scratch lottery tickets to sports betting, Australia is gambling away about $24 billion a year, according to the latest Australian gambling statistics. And the growing concern for problem gamblers has helped launch what has become known as the Community Benefits Scheme. The scheme requires gaming venues to make payments to the responsible gambling fund when a venue increases the number of gambling machines. Backchat's very own reporter, Eamon Snow, has delved into exactly what is going on in Australia's gambling landscape and why we're facing such a problem and how we might go about it. Here's Eamon. What do Adam Bant, Helen Haynes, Zali Stegall, Andrew Wilkie and Rebecca Sharkey all have in common? They're all federal politicians. They all sit in the House of Representatives and they were the only MPs to vote for an inquiry into allegations of political corruption and criminal wrongdoing by Crown Casino. The decision by the country's two major political parties to vote against the committee was met with widespread criticism, with many questioning whether it's an example of the power of Australia's gambling industry. 
While questions remain at a federal level, in New South Wales, the influence of the industry is much clearer. Pokies are an enormously lucrative business in New South Wales. State government figures released in May reveal that $779,000 is lost every hour across more than 93,000 poker machines. That's about $18.7 million every day and around $7 billion each year. And while that money lines the pockets of gambling operators, venues and the government, the impact on people is often ignored. I had my first hit on a poker machine when I was 16 years old. So at the local pub, uh, just with a few mates, no one asked you for ID. I was drinking, and that's when I first found pokies. Brett Heavers is a recovered gambling addict from the New South Wales Central Coast, an area with one of the highest propensities for gambling in the state. As a young man, poker machines engulfed Brett's life. As soon as I turned 18, it got pretty full on. It started out as going out with a few mates, then going out by yourself, and then going out at 3am, finding the early opener, to spending your whole pay. At one point, my hole was about $90,000. Payday loans. At one point, I had six going at a time. You'd get one payday loan to pay off the other one. And then you'd use a credit card to pay off that one. And then you'd use another payday loan to pay off the credit card. It's just, it's a big cycle. But by doing that as well, you're still going to the pokies. So you're still gambling. That's the whole cycle of having a gambling addiction. Unfortunately, Brett's story is a familiar one. With the help of his fiance and a lot of hard work, Brett ultimately recovered from his poker machine addiction. But for many, turning 18 and gaining access to the local pub's VIP room can mark the beginning of a much longer struggle. Dr Sally Gainsbury, co-director of the University of Sydney's Gambling Treatment and Research Clinic, says our young adults face a very real risk of becoming hooked. Once people do become young adults, so 18 to 24 or 29, we do see quite a spike in gambling-related problems in this age group. And that's because um, young people and young men in particular do have a sense of invulnerability, they have high rates of impulsivity, they have some disposable income and fewer responsibilities, so there is a tendency to spend that and engage in risk-taking activities. What's more, social media has brought with it new challenges for young people. A number of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages are glorifying and even encouraging the use and abuse of poker machines. It's a worrying shift, especially since it's illegal to advertise pokies in Australia. Those sorts of pages... I see as being yet another example of the kind of normalisation of gambling within Australia. There's a very popular narrative that gambling's just a bit of fun. For a lot of people it is, sure. For a lot of people it isn't. That narrative is one that is heavily promoted by the gambling industry itself and by extension Australian government. And that narrative filters down through society. Drew Rook is a freelance journalist from Sydney, as well as author of One Last Spin, The Power and Peril of the Pokies. Few people understand the state's pokey problem like Drew, and he says pokey addicts are fighting an uphill battle. You're up against triggers on every street corner, and you're up against an industry that has huge political clout. That political clout essentially means that Governments are reluctant to put in place measures that might actually help you reduce the harm that you're causing to yourself and to your family. What's interesting is the sheer number of poker machines in New South Wales, with almost half of the country's pokies spread throughout thousands of venues across the state. Tougher reforms were introduced by the Berejiklian government last year, including caps on pokey machines in high-risk areas. But Drew says it's not enough. 
there is um, a vast body of evidence to show that the current measures to reduce gambling harm are ineffective and that other measures that are more focused on harm minimization are needed. Those measures include lower maximum bets, something like $1 maximum bets, as opposed to the current maximum of $10 in New South Wales, and a mandatory pre-commitment scheme that kind of works as a seatbelt mechanism for gamblers. So will we see more effective action from the state government? Manager of Policy and Legislation with Liquor and Gaming New South Wales, Angus Abadie, says part of the solution lies with individuals. So the government's always concerned about um, making sure that gaming machines are operated in a responsible way and that harms associated with gaming machine operations are effectively managed. We feel that we've struck the right balance and ensure that gaming machines, which are a legitimate form of entertainment for many people who enjoy um, having a play recreationally, are able to do so while those who do have problems with gambling have effective measures in place to give them the support they need to prevent and treat those problematic gambling behaviours. The government is of the view that individuals do need to take some responsibility, but often they need help in doing that. And that's why the Responsible Gambling Fund funds $35 million worth of um, services to reduce those problematic gambling behaviours. That takes the form of gambling counselling, advertising campaigns and research into ways that we can improve how we help problem gamblers. But the government's own figures show that the Responsible Gambling Fund isn't having much of an impact. State Treasury figures released in August have predicted that pokey revenues will soar to more than $9 billion a year in the next decade. Brett says the temptation will always be there. I was in Long Jetty was it yesterday, and for the drive from Long Jetty to my house takes about half an hour, and I passed seven venues to gamble. Seven pokey venues, all with big signs at the front, you know, VIP room, whatever, this and that. And to a problem gambler, that's not good. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't have to pass seven gaming venues to go home. It's been said pokies are to New South Wales what guns are to America. Thanks to aggressive lobbying, record donations to political parties, and even sponsorship of academia, poker machines have become a phenomenon some people can't shake. They know what they're doing when they're putting these machines into venues. They know that there's problem gamblers in the communities and they know that people are going to play them and they know that they're going to get money out of it. That's why they do it. They prey on problem gamblers playing these machines. And the whole responsibility is on the person, but it's not as easy as saying, oh, just stop gambling. It's like saying to a, you know, an ice addict, stop taking ice. In New South Wales, the gambling industry is the most powerful, but I think there is optimism for change on a more grassroots level. This battle against the gambling industry has already been a long one, and it will only get longer. Hopefully, the small grassroots wins will build into something larger. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. 
That was Backchat reporter Eamon Snow telling us about the increasing issue of gambling in Australia. Remember, if you or a loved one suffers from gambling addiction, you can reach out to Lifeline Crisis Support on 13 11 14 or the Multicultural Problem Gambling Service on 1800 856 800. Well, that's all we have for the show today. Um, another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska, and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Lindsay Jackson, and our wonderful reporter, Eamon Snow. Uh, but here we go. Here is a song by Kate. Ka- it's apparently Kate. 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 I saw her um, live before Sing Smuno in concert um, at the Metro Theatre, and I fell in love with her. She's an amazing singer. I am hoping you're playing the right... It's um, called Miss Shiny. Yeah. Sweater, Sweater suggested this. She's awesome. Um, great Australian artist.